Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for mortgage and Lennox. Please listen responsibly and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode two of Mortgageonomics. I'm your host, Marco Gello. Today, I want to have a quick talk about the mortgage options available to Canadian homeowners and those currently looking to become homeowners. The headlines are starting to come out about banks declining mortgage deals to customers that would have otherwise qualified under the old rules, or simply making it so extremely difficult to qualify to the point that applicants simply surrender, give up. From a mortgage qualification standpoint, we are seeing the immediate impact of the new mortgage stress test. And to top it off, there are other unannounced policies that have or are coming into effect that the general public are not aware of. Like, for example, the tightening or reduction in the allowance of debt service ratios. 39% used to be a pretty common standard for income to mortgage debt allowance if your credit score was above a 680 score, which is a common credit score threshold, which many Canadians have. But now many banks are reverting to 35% regardless of how strong your credit score is. This is like basically a stress test within a stress test. As for the impact on the real estate markets, it's still too early to tell, but definitely not that far out. The upcoming spring market will definitely give us some insight. So if you're currently in the process of purchasing a home, or refinancing your existing mortgage, you'll understand the impact of these recently implemented rules firsthand. Everyone by now is aware that, generally speaking, mortgages are much tougher to qualify for. To recap, to qualify for a mortgage today, you have to qualify based on a rate that is 2% higher than what your actual rate is. And the unfortunate summary here is that you are basically qualifying for way less mortgage, as much as 30% lower than what you would have expected back in 2017. So it's pretty crazy, this whole stress test thing. Uh, mortgage approvals these days are totally overqualified. Like if you qualify today, every possible what-if scenario is covered by the lender. Uh, they've accounted for everything. The lenders and Canada's governing financing arm have succeeded in, in their, their ambition in protecting Canadians from themselves. That's right. The government of Canada thinks that you, your neighbor... And anyone else planning to purchase or refinance a home has absolutely no self-control when it comes to handling personal finances, in particular mortgages. I think they are partially right and just in their approach, but they've chosen the lesser of two evils to focus on, and that being mortgages, uh, which by definition are loans secured against collateral versus what they should have went after, unsecured loans. Uh, secured against absolutely no collateral, for example, credit cards and lines of credit. So in a way, the new stress test is kind of like uh, like an ultra-disciplinary kind of approach to improving our nation's financial health. And this is absolutely a good thing, but on the other side of that argument, you might say it's killing a lot of dreams of owning a home, upgrading to a larger one maybe to accommodate for a growing family, uh, and, and possibly the biggest one, creating a pretty massive barrier to those who are planning to purchase 
uh, especially first-time home buyers. So I don't think this is the case uh, as much in Calgary and Edmonton, uh, or maybe not as huge of an impact in Calgary and Edmonton in, in, in smaller markets uh, as per the actual sales averages of these respective cities. Uh, but in Vancouver and Toronto, it's a, it's a big deal. Um, for example, the purchasing power, uh, it's, it's known as a result of this uh, stress test that the purchasing power has been outright slashed for, for all Canadians. But that's all relative uh, to the variation in the price appreciation of all the real estate markets across Canada. And, and this is quite a drastic difference. So, for example, the past five years, the price appreciation has been negligible in Calgary, uh, whereas in Vancouver, it was so significant that it resulted in one of two classifications. You were either a newly declared millionaire as a result of your property or a newly declared long-term, maybe lifetime, renter with dreams of one day owning a home in Vancouver. So to put that in perspective, I, I left Calgary in 2011. And at that time, my home was worth uh, four ninety to 500000 And um, a pretty desirable neighborhood, very sellable property. And, and last week, as a matter of fact, I sold it. So I sold it. Here we are in 2018, seven years later. When I left, it was worth about five hundred. Sold it a couple of weeks ago for five hundred and fifteen thousand. Meanwhile, in Vancouver, I purchased a property in twenty thirteen for eight hundred and fifty thousand, and I can probably get some real serious offers on it right now for at least one point five. I know this is crazy, and this is the variation in the Canadian real estate market from coast to coast. And then probably a similar comparison in Toronto. But this is what Vancouver and Toronto are faced with. Um, this situation, absolutely, it, it is a, a result. Uh, it, a crisis is, is the result of this, an affordability crisis. Although it's hard to be sympathetic to homeowners in Vancouver who have become so-called equity millionaires, uh, when you look deeper, the real issue is that a massively deep-rooted tax-paying an employable population base has become really severely demoralized at the prospect of ever owning a home in a place they were born and raised. So it's going to be interesting how the rental market and the real estate market unfold in the coming months. Of all the mortgage rule and policy changes in the last 10 years, I can tell you that they were all pretty drastic and impactful. But did any single one of the changes result in a major collapse? That question is easy to answer if you were in Vancouver, Toronto. The answer would be no. The rule changes since 2008 have had absolutely no impact on making homes more affordable. They've not caused a, a softening of prices at all. So in fact, the market has been booming since the implementation of the first major rule change back in 2008. For mortgages. This was the first stress test like rule change that we've all forgotten about. And this was the reduction of the uh, qualifying amortization for mortgages from 40 years. That's right. 10 years ago, you were able to qualify for a mortgage based on a 40 year amortization and it got scaled down to 35 years in 2008. And this is where the purchasing power started to diminish. So fast forward 10 years today, the maximum qualifying amortization is 25 years. 
and the 2% stress test, really, it's the final nail in the coffin. And you got to wonder, what if the mortgage stress test, foreign buyer tax, and the empty home tax don't do the trick? What if this market picks up again and continues on its path? What then? What will the next policy change be? All along, we've been tinkering with the demand side. Maybe, just maybe, policymakers will begin serious discussion and perhaps focus more on looking at the possibility of expanding, innovating, or accelerating triggers on the supply side of real estate. This is where it gets tricky, though. Making policy on mortgages and property taxes was driven overwhelmingly by the government, policymakers. So basically, without any public consultation at all, in the past 10 years, these, these crazy rule changes came about. But as far as land usage, zoning, or development, and, and making changes in, in that space, a much larger component of voters, existing homeowners, taxpayers, you know, everyday people, have their say. So they're empowered to have their say on the rate and type of growth for the present and unforeseeable future in their respective neighborhoods. And of course, public consultation, absolute fundamental democratic right. So just as the debate rages on in Canada with pipeline nimbyism, the, the not in my backyard movement, perhaps we'll begin to see the same with homeowners and neighborhoods not open to densification intentions of developers and prospective home buyers. And many say that this is already the case. The process to build more supply is so time-enduring that the profit margin becomes compromised to the point that it doesn't make sense to proceed. Or you can bet that the big money developers are definitely going to forge ahead regardless. And they'll simply up their prices and, and account for these costs. So... Is there enough supply in Vancouver? If not, are we willing to increase densification and better streamline our home building process? But I think we can agree that the damage is done. The affordability issue is here, and it's here to stay. I would basically just, uh, I think it's time to retire the term affordability issue. It's time to move on. It's time to build around this. It's time to make our decisions around this going forward. Vancouver is now a legit world-renowned city that is like all world-renowned cities. It's expensive. I think the question that needs to be answered is, where do we go from here? intro I stated that we will be talking about the mortgage options available for Canadians looking to get into an outrageously priced market like Vancouver or Toronto. So here are some common mortgage deal breakers for applicants primarily in, in Vancouver I'll say and while I list these I'll uh, at the same time add how to remedy them or or add some tips. Um, 
so here it is. Here's my sample case. Uh, let's introduce a few variables, so kind of like entry-level thresholds. So without doing any intense research on price points in Vancouver, I'm just going to use uh, an entry-level price range for a condo of $500,000. And yeah, that'd be like a one-bedroom, hopefully 600 square feet. To qualify for this with a minimal down payment of 5%, $25,000, you'd require an income, an annual income of $97,000. Okay, so good news on the income, though. It, it could be a combined 97000 So, you know, you can team up with your spouse, friend, get your more, uh, parents on that mortgage, whoever, as long as it adds up to $97,000 a year. As for the down payment, the only stipulation is that it is not from a personal line of credit or a credit card. So this is what the lender refers to as borrowed funds. So it cannot be borrowed funds. Parental support or what lenders refer to as a gift, however, are totally acceptable and welcome. And finally, I've accounted for an allowable monthly amount of $400 for other debt, like say a car payment or some accumulated credit card debt, whatever. Okay, so deal breaker number one, the new car loans or leases. Okay, massive deal breaker and basically any other personal debt other than mortgages. So I would say a reasonable monthly payment for a car loan, you know, especially for a first time home buyer is about $400 a month. But every so often I see a monthly payment that exceeds $800 a month. So here's the difference. The guy with the $400 a month car loan or lease will qualify for the $500,000 condo purchase. And that's with the minimum down payment, $25,000. But the guy with an $800 car payment qualifies for a purchase of $415,000 with a minimum down payment of $20,750, so 5%. So not quite, like, I mean, that's, that's $85,000 uh, reduction in your purchasing power right there. So not quite an impact of the magnitude you would expect as the 2% stress test. But still, quite a substantial loss in buying power, uh, like by 17%. So altogether, we're at potentially a 37% reduction in your buying power due to the 2% stress test and the choice of car you purchased. So pretty insane when you factor in that car payment. I won't do the car industry any favors when I say this, but lay off or outright eliminate <clears throat> eliminate the temptation for a big big car payment or at least until after you close on your real estate deal deal breaker number 2 self employed income declaration in the previous financing order lenders used to assume or maybe i should say give you the benefit of the doubt that the reason why you are declaring such a low income on your notice of assessment line 150 to be precise, is because you are a savvy business person incorporating advanced tax strategies, like keeping the cash in the business so as to take advantage of a more preferred rate of taxation. They would then, as a result, allow you to bump up or what was better known in the lending industry, state your income. This allowed the applicant to significantly bump up his or her income on a mortgage application to a figure where they could qualify for the mortgage. As long as you were self-employed for at least two years and had a credit score of at least 680 and had a down payment of at least 20%, you could do so. 
and without much documentation and verification. Well, that's not, no, no longer the case. Uh, you can continue to declare a low income for tax purposes, but you will now have to provide a fair amount of documents pertaining to your business to now verify the declared bump up of your income for mortgage qualification purposes. So if your company is successful and indeed profitable, then you have nothing to worry about. You know, just be patient and forthcoming because uh, there still be a lot of documents requested. But if your company <clears throat> is, is not profitable and your declared income, your, your low declared income is in fact your true income, basically, if your declared income is low because you haven't had a great year, you will be restricted from grossing up your income. After reviewing your business financials and countless other documents that the lender will request, they will then deem that your company is not profitable and there is no potential for grossing up your qualifying income. So if you currently have a salary job and have aspirations of becoming self-employed, I would definitely hold off on your entrepreneurial dream until you purchase your real estate. If in fact, you know, purchasing real estate is very important to you. So just remember, as soon as you become self-employed, you are essentially unmortgageable for a period of two years. And that's assuming you have a stellar start to your business. So really, you could be unmortgageable for longer than two years when you consider the statistic that over 50% of businesses fail within seven years of their startup. And to end on a good note, I'm going to change from listing deal breakers to deal savers now. So deal saver number one, adding a co-signer to your mortgage. Okay, In many instances, applicants fall short in qualifying for a mortgage, but really they don't realize how short. Okay, so And before we can bring up the prospect of adding a co-signer uh, to an applicant, uh, you know, adding a cosigner on your mortgage application, the idea in many cases is outright dismissed immediately, you know, for reasons that are humility or fear of rejection of uh, your cosigner, your, your parent or, or whoever, you know, declining the request. But when the terms are understood, particularly the exit strategy for the cosigner, the proposition could then become more comforting and agreeable. So, if a cosigner is suggested to you by a lender, be sure to ask, uh, you know, how much income are you actually short for qualifying on your own? This is important. Knowing this and communicating uh, to your cosigner could be the deciding factor whether they vouch for you or not. So, for example, let's say you're about $15,000 short of, uh, of income to qualify for your mortgage. Or maybe, maybe your $7,000 car loan has put you above the debt service ratios. Okay? So it might be comforting for your cosigner, your prospective cosigner, you know, maybe your parent, uh, which by the way usually is a parent, to know it might be comforting for them to know that as long as, as soon as you pay off your car loan in a couple of years, you will then technically qualify on your, on your own, at which time you would simply provide the appropriate documents to the lender to verify so. And there you have it. You no longer require a cosigner and can release their obligation from your mortgage. Okay, so a lot of cosigners don't know that. They think they're, they're on the hook for the rest of their lives. So in many cases, especially if you are still at the growth phase of your, of your career, uh, it's reasonable to expect that your wage will increase in the near future. 
So don't feel shame in acquiring a cosigner. And if you do, simply discuss the exit strategy uh, with them. And, uh, you know, it, it make it more comfortable and, and they'll, be, they'll be more comfortable with the, uh, the decision and relieved that there is, in fact, an exit strategy. All right. And I'll uh, leave you with the final deal saver here. Um, use a mortgage broker. So one application, one credit check and access to many, many lenders. And uh, trust me, this will save you a lot of uh, stress, grief. It'll ensure that you get the best interest rate and the best possible uh, shot at qualifying for a mortgage. All right, well, that's a wrap. I hope you got value out of today's episode. Um, Feel free to reach out to me if you'd like to discuss anything uh, we talked about in greater detail or any other mortgage-related matter. You can find me at Marco Gello. So that's Marco with the K-G-E-L-O. Dot com, or follow me on Facebook by searching Mortgageonomics Canada Podcast. Also, please don't hesitate to share and tell your friends about Mortgageonomics Canada. The more listeners, the better. Thanks again for your time. Talk to you later. Comes in.